Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. This, uh, this talk is inspired by a comment that Gil made a few nights ago in his talk. <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was a comment that perhaps it's thought that we don't challenge you enough. I think his word was, uh, was push you, perhaps, that sometimes people would, would think, oh, this is like California Dharma. <clears throat> And uh, that maybe we're a little soft. Well, I, I don't want to uh, feed your doubting mind or comparing mind or have you feel that what you're doing isn't good enough, <clears throat> particularly since the last time I spoke here about the comparing mind and uh, encourage you to just feel your own uh, goodness and wholeness. And that's a message I, I still want you to come away with. So I hope the talk is helpful, and I um, hope that what it does is um, get you in touch with your own love of practice so that whatever work you do here is coming from that place of uh, the deep dedication that you have to do this work from the deepest place possible. Is around this time in a retreat, both for those who are um, say, three-quarters of the way through, or for those who are just going into, uh, into the, the middle of their retreat, it's kind of, uh, it's possible for there to be a sense of um, coasting or getting comfortable, getting familiar with your routine. You know how the day goes now, it's not so much of a, uh, of a daunting experience as when you first got here. Um, and uh, you kind of know the lay of the land and it can easily uh, be more of a routine than coming from a place of, of deeper in inspiration to practice. And in order to do this, you need to get in touch with some source of, of inspiration. Because in a way, 100% um, intention and commitment is easier than 75 or 80%. I, perhaps you know what, uh, what I mean. Um, but when you give uh, your, from your whole heart Act, actually, the practice has a real fulfillment and a real um, uh, inspiring quality. So I wanted to talk tonight on um, spiritual passion. Now, passion might seem like a kind of un-Buddhist word. There's lots of different kinds of passion. <coughs> And the Buddha talked a lot about dispassion as well. But he also talked from a place of deep, deep passion in a sense of a total involvement. Dharma practice is not a passive acceptance of the way things are. There is definitely that essential component just opening up to things as they are. But there needs to be a wholehearted spirit that you bring to your exploration in order for there to really be a waking up. Equanimity 
is not the same thing as passivity. There's a, a passage uh, from Blake, William Blake, that great Buddhist, but, uh, <laughs> but something that he says that I think really relates to practice. Those who enter the kingdom of heaven are not the ones who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but rather those who have developed an understanding of them. And so, in a way, what we're doing here is um, transmuting that intensity, that passion that we might have for things or experiences that um, can hook us out in the world, to bring that same quality of yearning, of caring for something that is, uh, is leading towards the end of passion, towards the end of that connection of attachment. And it, it's been an issue in my own practice, actually, how to uh, reconcile my passionate side, because I, I have a very passionate side. I'm an Aries, if that means anything to you. <laughs> I love sports, and people can hear down the block who's winning if, uh, if it's my team, or who's losing if it's my team. Uh, and I, as I mentioned the last time I spoke, I have a very competitive nature that comes out sometimes in practice, particularly in my early years. I love to celebrate. I love to sing. I love to feel things really deeply. And fortunately, I became very passionate about something that helped cool me out a bit. <laughs> this. But I still have that passion. I do. I remember when I first... Uh, <laughs> When I first uh, got into this practice, I remember it was the summer of uh, 1974, and I, uh, I happened to be, I was f completely in love with the Dharma as I, I heard it just over one week after another, just falling more and more in love. And there was this one day I was wearing my New York Knicks t-shirt, right? And I was a season ticket holder to the New York Knicks in their glory days. This is 1973, 74. And I remember sitting there thinking, wait a second, am I going to end up going to Madison Square Garden and saying, nice shot, Fraser. <laughs> Good shot, have a check. <laughs> and it was, it was, a, it was a, a juncture, it was a key point in my practice. Because I went running up to Joseph and saying, listen, you know, what's going to happen here? And, and he assured me, don't worry, you know, you'll, still, you'll still get into it, which he was completely right about. But this is not about becoming like a zombie. It's about really feeling everything that you're feeling, but putting it towards the direction of true liberation. And it requires that. It really does. And uh, as I think about the people who, my, uh, my friends and, and colleagues um, who I've practiced with, you know, there's, there's something really inspiring about practicing with my friends. I can remember Sylvia and I in the early years, we would go to Yucca Valley. Uh, we'd both be in Yucca Valley and sitting together. And I'd be sitting... I was more on the late, late night sitting in those days. <clears throat> and Sylvia was in the early, early morning sitting. And there would be this time, it would happen quite regularly, where it would be kind of like changing of the guard, you know. And I'd be the last one in the hall. And then Sylvia would come in in the wee hours, and we'd sit for a while together. And then I'd leave, and it was like, you know, we said silently, hi really great to, to practice with you. It was, it was wonderful. And practicing uh, with... Uh, um, I haven't practiced in an intensive retreat with, uh, uh, with 
guy or Sally, except for some uh, some recent years and some Dzogchen practices. But uh, practicing with Howie was was always fun, because he really gets into it, or Carol Wilson or Jack, and um, it's wonderful, and it's it's inspiring. Ajahn Sumedho, who I read from the other night, you know, he would practice with intense, intense conviction. I never practiced with him other than when he'd be leading a retreat, but in his early years, I don't have the passage with me, he talks about going into, uh, into his kuti, into his, cut, into his hut, and uh, at one point um, when he first got there, he discovered that there was a huge uh, bee's nest, you know, and he'd sit there, this is the thing that first impressed me about Ajahn Sumedho, covered with bees. After a while, it was like he was sharing it with bees, you know, sharing his, his space with bees. You know. Wow, okay. I don't know if I could get that far, but uh, it was impressive. You know. The Buddha is the prime example of practicing with passion. Before his awake awakening, when he was still seeking the truth, just as we seek it, he made this determination. If the end is attainable by human effort, I will not rest or relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. That's pretty impressive, huh? So, when I say this, I, I'm not, again, instilling a, a place that you're not doing it enough. I don't want you to judge yourself, but I want you to acknowledge and contact that place that really cares and nurture it and honor it so that it fuels your process. You can't be passionate in every moment, obviously, but you can come from this place of, I should say, you can't be um, efforting every moment. That's not so skillful, and I'll talk about that uh, later on. Passion does not mean striving, but you can come from a place of real caring in every moment. A few years ago, Ramdas met with, with uh, some of the teachers, and he asked a, a very challenging question. He said, which I'll ask you, is awakening just a hobby? Is it a good hobby? Is it a good thing to do that, that sounds pretty neat, that will make you feel better? Or is it something that you are completely dedicated to? It's a, that's a challenging question. And again, there's no wrong answer. You just have to be clear about where you're at. <clears throat> so I ask you, what, what turns you on, before I go on, what turns you on and motivates you to practice and continue on your journey. Go inside, and in a little while we'll, we'll look at the different ways that people get motivated. Go inside. What is it that really makes you reach down for that extra intention? When the doubts are there or you you know, you don't think you've got anything left. When you do draw from something, what is it that you draw from? And how do you hold back at other times? What gets in the way of getting in touch with that wellspring of inspiration?
maybe you might think, oh, well, what's the point? You know, if I really, if I really put my whole heart into it, you know, just what are the possibilities? I mean, really, do people still get enlightened? That sounds like a good line from the time of the Buddha. But does it happen now? Do people really get enlightened? And I wanted to read to you something from um, Ledi Sayadaw, L-E-D-I, who is a, a great master from uh, the last century, from the, from the uh, 19th century. He says, In this world, some persons, far from putting forth the full scale of intention and commitment prescribed by the Buddha, do not try to set up their practice effectively in order to cure their minds of aimless drifting. And yet they say that their failure to attain enlightenment is due to the fact that these are times that preclude such attainment. All these people say because they do not, they do not know, say so because they do not know that these are times where it's actually possible to become free. And this is what he says. If proper, wise effort is put forth with dedicated intention, where a thousand put forth that effort, three, four, or five hundred of them can attain the supreme achievement. If a hundred put forth effort, thirty, forty, or fifty of them can attain the supreme achievement. And here, this dedicated intention means determination to adhere to the effort throughout one's life and to die, if need be, while still making the effort. That's inspiring. The first time I heard that, wow, out of a thousand people, 500, if they really wholeheartedly do what it takes, could become really enlightened, supreme achievement, he says. I want to um, share with you, as we explore this topic, a list, one of, uh, one of the lists that perhaps many of you don't know quite as well, and I'll read the discourse, uh, or part of the discourse, in a moment. It is, uh, it's part of a, uh, the big list of lists. <clears throat> there is one list called the 37 requisites of enlightenment. Okay. And it's a list of lists that most of, uh, most of which you know, including the Eightfold Path, that's eight out of the 37, the Seven Factors of Enlightenment, that's 15, the Five Faculties that Gil spoke about the other night, which also are, become the Five Powers, same five qualities, so that's up to 25. <coughs> the four foundations of mindfulness, 29. The four right efforts that Sally spoke of uh, a few nights ago, that's 33. And the last of this are called the four bases of power, or bases of success. Joseph, in one of his books, calls it uh, the roads to fulfillment. And in Pali, the name is um, Idipada, the four Idipadas. Now, Idi, you might hear there's a, a, a similarity to the word Siddhi, S-I-D-D-H-I. You ever hear, you know, somebody who has Siddhis and they can do amazing things. It's the same thing as idi, powers. And pada is uh, a basis for these powers. This is the Buddha from the Samyutta Nikaya. He says, Bhikkhus, these four bases for spiritual power, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. What for? Here, a bhikkhu develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to desire. And in another text, this is 
also called zeal, as well as formations of true effort. Here's the words, volitional form, formations of striving. Um, he develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to energy and wise effort. He develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to mind, which um, also can be called consciousness or, um, well, citta and wise effort. And he develops the basis for spiritual power that possesses concentration due to investigation. Also, in another uh, translation, discrimination is, is a word that's used, and wise effort. These four bases for spiritual power, when developed and cultivated, lead to going beyond from the near shore to the far shore. And then in about one, two, three, four, five, as about mm, 20 different uh, sections where he repeats over the importance of these four bases. Talking to bhikkhus, talking to brahmins, talking to uh, noble ones, talking, to, talking about Buddhas, all of them about the f- these four bases for spiritual power, the idipadas. <coughs> So I want to go over these and see if you can connect or relate to them. Because what they are, and perhaps a few moments ago when you reflected, uh, when I asked you to, to check inside, what they are are ways that we draw our inspiration to practice. They are <clears throat> the first one in Pali, Chanda Idipada. Second, virya idipada. The third one, citta idipada. And the fourth, vamamsa idipada. Isn't that a cool list to know? <laughs> These are, again, you probably knew most of all the other ones from those 37 requisites. This is one list that isn't so well known and yet is the it's the basis it's the foundation for freedom because what he's saying is we need to get in touch with what it is that truly inspires us to practice chanda the word chanda in this uh, translation is um, is talked as desire the word chanda literally means zeal now, you might say, oh, desire. You know, I thought we we're supposed to get rid of desires. But there was the Buddha saying, let my sinews and let my bones dry up. He had intense desire for his goal. And somebody who is strong in this chanda idipada has that very strong, wholehearted commitment. There can be uh, a quality of deep enthusiasm that says, I'm going to do this. I'm really going to do this. A very strong intensity, a very strong inspiration. Sometimes, People have a great fascination with learning, with just wanting to discover the truth, just for the sheer adventure of it. If that's strong in you, then perhaps this is your, your road to fulfillment. You just want to know. And probably each one of us here, I'm sure each one of us here, had that moment where we saw the possibility. I think a few talks ago I had asked uh, people to, to remember when it was. Do you remember when it was that you got turned on to the Dharma? I said, yes, okay, I'm going for it. <clears throat> or this has now become a priority in my life. 
I can remember, I think I said last, last time, just being in that room at Naropa Institute and, um, and hearing Joseph. And after a f the first 10 or 15 minutes saying, oh, well, you know, he's, he wasn't, he's not quite the meditation teacher that I, he didn't look very impressive, you know. <laughs> He was from, he, he sounded like he was from Brooklyn. He's from New York. I was from Queens, you know. He was just a couple of years older than me. He didn't have like a, a very regal demeanor, didn't have a long, you know, flowing beard, and, you know. <laughs> but I knew after hearing for, after a little while, that he knew something that I definitely wanted to know that I didn't know. And I just fell in love with the Dharma. And a lot of times it's because we're coming from a place of real pain that when you see the possibility, you are highly motivated. And that was the case for me. Now, my exterior life was, was pretty good by most any standard, but there was so much pain inside. There was so much, you know, self judgment and, 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 uh, and doubt and, and insecurity, when I saw that there was a possibility, it never occurred to me before that I wouldn't be ruled by my neurotic thought patterns. I pretty much had resigned myself to that. And when I saw he was saying there's a real possibility to not be enslaved by them, I just was going for it. <clears throat> So remember your motivation and that enthusiasm that sometimes perhaps you've had for practice. <clears throat> I remember one time going to uh, an interview and it was after a number of years of, of practice and just kind of like um, coming into a whole other dimension of, of practice and going into the interview and saying, you know, I don't know what I've been doing for the last five or six years, but this is just, this is a whole other world, you know. It's like I've, I've, I'm, I've never been here before. I didn't know how big the territory was, you know. And he said, Joseph said, oh yeah, I know that, that feeling. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit, you know. And then he looked at me, you know, I, oh, wow. And then he, he looked, and I, I get shivers when I, I think, as he looked at me, and he said, yeah, and you know what? It's like we're on the tip of the iceberg. We're on the tip of the iceberg. And that image has been so inspiring to me. Now you can say, the tip of the iceberg, oh my goodness, how much there, more there is to learn. You know, I'll never get it. But if you've got a kind of adventurous side or a, a kind of enthusiastic side, it's exciting. Oh, wow how much more there is to learn, how neat. This is Chanda Idipada. A second quality, the second Idipada, base of power, is Virya Idipada, which Virya is translated usually as energy or effort. We sometimes have tremendous energy for practice that allows us to just not be, sto be stopped or daunted by anything. Nothing is going to get in my way. Like the Buddha saying, let my bones and blood dry up. And where you see the hardships of practice as challenges. I can do this. I'm going to do this. Just a very undaunted um, attitude. When, you, uh, when I practiced with uh, Upandita, this Burmese master, he was, he was the master at challenging your, your effort, what he called heroic effort. You know, and he would, his line, his main line, I don't know if I said it here in a, a previous talk, was, Abandon all concern for the body. <laughs> you know, if you sit and your leg feels like it's falling off, note it 
as it's doing it, you know. <laughs> Heroic effort. Some people have that kind of undaunted um, quality, property inside. And when you can, can come from that place, it's, there's a certain confidence as you're being with the difficulties and the hardships. And what happens is you get tremendous sense of faith. Oh yes, I'm able to be with this too. You know, there are times, and you probably have, have experienced this too, you know, where there would be really strong pain. Just thinking, this is crazy. Why would I want to sit through this would be the natural thought. But just for the hell of it, say, okay, let's see. Let's see what this is and not be frightened by it. And when I've done that, it would break through to a whole other level of capacity that I didn't know was there. Now, you can do that from a place of macho meditation and get, in, get filled with pride and say, aren't I cool? And that's not necessarily good practice. But if you do it just for the challenge, this is this virya idipada. <clears throat> A third of these idipadas is citta idipada. And citta is the word that means heart or mind, heart-mind or consciousness. And what it, what it is, what it points to, is the, the consciousness that is opened up when you taste the Dharma, when you really taste it, and you get a good drink of it, and realize there's nothing quite like it that's going to hold your attention, that matters as much. It's a kind of an attachment where you've fallen in love with the Dharma. So this isn't something that starts out this way, as I understand it from the various interpretations and readings that I've had, that I've explored in this. But it's this real deep connection to a place that says, this is what counts in my life, and everything else pales by comparison. And sometimes, perhaps you've had that experience, for me, in, in retreat particularly, where it gets really quiet and where the doer isn't around, but it's just simply a purity of heart that's touched, that is so compelling you want to revisit that again and again, or not necessarily recreate it, just go, go deeper and deeper into that because you know that there's something there, like a moth to a flame. There's no choice in that. Whether you call it love of the truth or love of the Dharma, whatever it is, when you're touched by that deeply in moments of practice, hang out with that and feel how much you love the Dharma. Because the more you are present for it, and the more you let your heart be touched, and that gratitude fills you up, whether you call it grace, or awe, or wonder, or whatever you call it, when it fills you up and you're really present for it, there is nothing that touches it, is there? I know that's so for me. Nothing. And for some people, this is their doorway. This is their, their road to fulfillment, their base, basis for power, for spiritual power, this citta idipada, love for the Dharma. And then the fourth of these is 
vimamsa idipada, which is translated as investigation or discrimination. And what it is, is as you understand your situation, there is a real sense of urgency that comes. What an incredible opportunity this is. Think of how few people hear the Dharma, how much fewer have a chance to practice it and an inclination to and an opportunity to practice it. Incredibly rare, amazingly rare. So with this one, you see, wow, if I don't make use of this opportunity, I'll, I'll really be missing out on something something that can lead to real freedom and just go around on this wheel of samsara continuously. As the Buddha says, when, he, when you investigate, he says, we're like children playing with toys in an attic, thinking everything is just wonderful, not realizing that the house is burning down. Now, he has some pretty awesome images that uh, inspire people to practice. And he's just telling it like it is. All the rounds, the rebirths, all the cycles that we've been on, as he says, the, the, the bones of all of our lives, past lives, when matched against the highest mountain, are much higher. Those bones all the tears that we've shed over the course of, of our lives, greater than the water in the four great oceans. So when you realize that this is an opportunity to really be free in the depths of freedom and suffering, that's, that's quite an inspiration. <clears throat> the uh, reflections that, that are given the four mind-changing reflections. The, the Tibetans work a lot with this, and it's also in the Theravadan. The four reflections that lead to the sense of urgency. The rarity of a human birth, as I've just said. The rarity of a human birth. One, one fact that really blew my mind, uh, I came across it last year. I think it was uh, Wes in his book or in some article that, uh, that he read. And I asked him, is, is it real? Did I get this right? And he said, yeah. He said, he read that there are more living organisms in your mouth right now <laughs> than there have been humans since the beginning of history. <laughs> Think about that one for a while. <laughs> so we're not just kind of, you know, talking theoretically here. The preciousness and the rarity of a human birth. Amazing. The, the fact that there is impermanence and death. This is inevitable. This is part of the package. And we're only here for, what, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, you know, perhaps. And it goes by like that. You know, I don't know about for you, but, you know, junior high wasn't all that long ago. (laughs) I don't know how it got from there to here, you know. So to really make use of this time, understanding to some extent karma, the law of cause and effect, that what you practice will be what you grow into. And so if you're practicing greed, hatred, and delusion, that is what you're creating for the future in all your rounds of samsara. If you can practice non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, you are creating the possibility of real peace and freedom and liberation. So understanding karma makes every act count.
And the fourth of the mind changers is the shortcomings of samsara. And not being seduced by all the messages that we hear will make us happy. If we get this, if we get as much as we can and as quickly as we can, that's what happiness is. No way. To really see that there is joy that comes and goes very quickly because there's no lasting happiness, joy in, in the typical sense that, that we think of. There's sorrow. There's old age, sickness and death. There's cruelty. There's all the various kinds of, of uh, sufferings in the world. And seeing the shortcomings of samsara, we're not quite as seduced thinking, yeah, let's, let's just you know, drink it to the last drop. I think it's good to drink it mindfully, but realize that it's very, very short-lived. So these investigations really create a sense of making use of this time, vamamsa idipada. Now, it's very tricky to be motivated by, by fear. I, I personally you know, find it more beneficial and inspiring to be motivated by the possibility, like that tip of the iceberg. But some people, you know, that is what works for them. And the Buddha wanted people to know just what the situation is so that they can make wise choices. So given this, how to practice how to practice from that place of passion without it becoming tight and efforting and striving in, the, in the, the sense of the word that usually makes people turn off to practice. The kind of effort that's required, whatever of these roads you, you are walking on primarily, is really an effort that comes from the heart. It's not about looking any way. It's not about um, having any particular state happen so that you can, you can um, have your chest puffed out and say, yeah, I got there. It's not going to last anyway. Whatever you're doing or whatever you're going through is going to change. So it's not about getting any place but it's about a willingness to just show up, like Gil said a few nights ago. Just to be here and be open to everything that's here takes a tremendous commitment and effort. It's a a saying in the Tibetan uh, teachings, everything rests on the tip of one's motivation. And if we can get in touch with a motivation that's really pure, that's really inspiring, then take that next step with that commitment. Everything unfolds from that. Now, I just want to share my particular practice has gone through lots of different phases. Just to share with you a little bit personally, it hasn't, it's looked differently at different times. When I I first got into practice, as I said, seeing Joseph in uh, that first year, I was very highly motivated, extremely motivated. And I just dove in. um, And I I had a long honeymoon with, with the Dharma. The honeymoon period lasts for a while, and then that changes too. But I just was practicing... As uh, Lady Sayadaw says, like your hair is on fire. Yeah. Yes. And fortunately for me, it was, it, there was, um, it was this l- more of a love affair. I didn't have all that much uh, physical dukkha in the beginning. I, I got to places in that uh, as it went on. But I was highly motivated. And meanwhile, uh, Joseph in those first years was the essence of spaciousness. You know, everything is simple and easy. You know, Manindraji, his teacher, who uh, 
we've been reminiscing about. Um, and I have such gratitude for him. Manindraji was this, uh, is this, he's still alive, this wonderful Indian teacher who studied with Mahasi Sayadaw. And Mahasi Sayadaw, who was Upandita's teacher, you know, was a no-frills master. But Manindraji translated the teachings into very accessible ways. So his, his lines would be, you know, simple and easy. That was, that was the refrain, simple and easy. Rest in, in awareness, empty phenomena rolling on. So Joseph had this very spacious kind of Taoist approach. And uh, I, there I was, you know, just really going for it. <clears throat> and uh, when I first then started practicing, when Mahasi Sayadaw came in 1979, and I just got into noting everything noting every single moment I could, and it just, it was incredible and amazing. It's very powerful to practice that way. But I also got into thinking, oh, that's the way you're supposed to practice. And on uh, the retreat that I did in 1981, where I sat with uh, my wife, Jane, um, it was just before we were married, and she got this idea for me oh, you're supposed to practice this way. And it was not her way. And she got close to developing an ulcer. Actually, she started to develop an ulcer on that retreat. And uh, we weren't talking at all, but you know, I heard later on after the retreat, and Joseph kept on saying, that's his way. You don't have to do it that way. And after that, you know, she, she did it for a whole lot of people, what she did, because I realized, uh-uh, that's not that's not right practice. If you're saying to everybody, it's got to look like this, this is, this is not so. We don't want to have people develop ulcers because they're not doing enough. And I became very, very um, um, motivated to see what way works for, for people because I was, I was starting to teach by that time and just seeing oh, it's got to be coming from a place of spaciousness and ease and um, kindness. That's got to be the heart of where the practice comes. Then you can go in and look deeply. And to lighten up on my ideas of, of what good practice would, would look like externally. Then sat with Upandita in the, the famous 1984 retreat which is the appropriate year for it. And it was, it was really intense. It was very intense. But I was just going to you know, go for it. Okay, I could practice like that. You want effort? I'll put in effort. And it was a very, very powerful retreat for me. But at some point, every time, it seemed like you know, Upandita's um, approach is just turn up the jets, you know, and full steam ahead. And at one point, uh, he, uh, he, gave, uh, he gave this, this response to my reporting. When, when, the, when the, um, uh, the translator would take off his glasses and rub his face, I knew I was, I was in for, you know, trouble. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I gave this report, just really putting my whole heart into it. And he, he takes off his glasses <laughs> and says, the, the Sayadaw wonders if you have the fortitude required to do this practice correctly. Yeah. I was crushed. Crushed. And I, I said, I wrote him, I said, I've been more concentrated, more mindful, but I know I'm giving 100 and 10% effort. And he actually became very kindly towards me for, for a while after that. <laughs> for a while, anyway. And it, uh, it, then I got into thinking, oh, well, that's the way you're really supposed to practice, but there's something that didn't feel like it was, like it was for me, even though that's the way I naturally practiced that kind of straining and striving, I knew that that's not something I wanted to, to teach. 
at least in that style. Now, for some people, I know what it's like to practice with heroic effort, and it's very valuable. But it's, again, got to come from the heart, and it's got to come from a place of spaciousness and ease, and from one of these sources of inspiration, because you just, because you want to, not because you're supposed to. And then I went to India and uh, met Punjaji, who completely blew my mind, you know, with warmth and, and love and, and wisdom and, you know, laughing and, you know, seeing, oh, you don't have to be so serious to do this. Punjaji had such a commitment to practice, not in the formal way that we're doing, but to come to his complete awakening. He was a Krishna bhakta. He loved Krishna when he was a very young, uh, young boy. He fell in love with Krishna, and for the next 40 years, his life was about finding Krishna, meeting Krishna. And he was one of these uh, intoxicants who, um, and this is done by others, but he would dress up as a gopi, as a as a cow uh, herd um, that Krishna would play with the cowgirls, you know, because he was a, 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 cow, a cow herder. And, and uh, Punjaji would dress up as, as a, a, a woman, as a gopi maid, a milk, milkmaid, you know, so that he could, so that Krishna would come visit him, you know. He was serious, right? But by the time I had gotten to him, you know, 70 years later, after that, uh, he got a lot lighter, right? <laughs> and he was just this, this incredible energy of lightness and laughter and love, and just seeing, oh, that is part of this practice too. You know? That is part of awakening as well. And then starting to sit with, uh, with, some, with Tibetans and doing some Dzogchen practice, which then you know, and, and which a number of teachers have, have uh, explored. Just that sense of ease and spaciousness, simple and easy. So it doesn't look any one way. And you get all different kinds of, of messages, you know. Practice like your hair is on fire and we're children in an attic uh, with our house burning down and abandon all concern for the body or strive on diligently. And then you get other messages, you know, even within the Theravadan, Buddha Dasa saying, nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have. Third Zen Patriarch, just let things be as in their own way and there'll be neither coming nor going. Or this is a beautiful passage. I love this from... uh, from uh, Gendon Rinpoche, Tibetan. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do, nothing to force, nothing to want, and everything happens by itself. Sounds good, huh? That's done, though. That, those kinds of teachings are usually shared after the preliminary practices, which include 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 mantra recitations, 100,000 visualizations, and, and mudras. So. What you do is really put in your time and deepen your commitment so that then you can open up and let go. And it's the same thing here that we practice. It takes effort to be present, doesn't it? Because everything in all of our habits and in our life conspires against us being here in the present moment. So it takes a lot of intention and commitment and effort to keep on coming back each time. You've got to come back in a kindly way, otherwise you just get more and more wound up. But you do have to come back and make that intention to come back. And then after a while, the magical thing happens. 
you're here. And then once you're here, there's nothing that you need to do to be more here. In fact, any kind of doing just takes you out of being here. And that's the paradox. It takes a lot of doing to get here, and once you're here, just being is where it's at. And it's available in every single moment, except we have to keep on coming back because we forget. But in a moment, just be here, right now, okay? Let's all be here for a moment. Close your eyes. Don't do anything. Just let yourself relax deeply as the rain comes down, as the room is complete in this moment, without doing anything, just open up and feel life happening through you. Let yourself rest in that completely. Okay. That's not so hard, is it? The hard part is remembering to come back and just be. So here's where that effort, as it's really put forth from a place of inspiration, becomes effortless. There's no one right way. What helps is if you're inspired to be here. And there are things that you can do to move out of the comfort zone, whether it's sitting until it feels right to get up, knowing why you're getting up, or if your body has energy, to practice, to keep on practicing, and not get into the ideas of what you need or don't need, just to explore the adventure of it. Continuity is really a key to practice, to see if you can, whenever you realize it, just come back and once again remember to be, remember to be here. So whatever it is that inspires you to put out that complete wholehearted intention, use it. Stretch yourself in the kindest way possible, but stretch yourself just from your heart so that you get out the possibilities, the great riches that are here in this practice. I'll just close with this uh, passage. Uh, I don't know, I don't think I've read it on this retreat. Maybe I did. I love it. It's from The Scottish Himalayan Expedition by W. H. Murray. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That is, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves to. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no person could have dreamt would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So let's sit for a moment.
This talk was given by James Barras at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 24, 2001. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.